Somebody shout hallelujah. Amen. Are you ready for the word tonight? Whoa, lift your right hands to heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice and we thank you for the privilege of coming and respectfully before your holy writ word. Thank you, mighty Holy Spirit that lives on inside to guide us into all the truth. I pray that tonight revelation knowledge will flow freely in this place. Bodies and yokes are destroyed. Whatever is not planted by God is rooted out. Your people built up, equipped, edified, and Jesus glorified. Thank you that by the end of this service tonight, nobody lives here the same way they came. We give you praise, glory, and honor for answered prayer. In Jesus' precious name, and every believer says a powerful amen. amen. Well, give the Lord Jesus the greatest shout in this place tonight. Glory. You can be seated with your sweet, smart self tonight. Glory to God forevermore. Whoa, what a, what a, what a, what a night. I'm so excited to be with you at the Curry Center. So glad to see again and to be again with Reverend Josh Lai and the First Lady of this ministry. So let's begin tonight. We're investigating the wrath of God. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse number 15. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse number 15. Brother Paul writes a letter to Timothy, a protege of his. And he says to Timothy, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So salvation is faith in Christ. So Brother Paul says that Timothy had known the word oida. It means Timothy had become acquainted with the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise. The word wise is the word sophizo, taken from the word sophia in the Greek, which means skillful. That the scriptures are able to make you skillful unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The next verse is all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration. The word inspiration is the word breath. That the scriptures came out of the breath, the ruach of God, out of the pneuma of God, the scriptures. That God breathed on people who documented the scriptures. And the scriptures are profitable. The word profitable is Greek word ophilimos. Ophilimos means advantageous or useful. That the scriptures will only be useful and advantageous for teaching. The word teaching there is the word didascalia. The word doctrine. Doctrine. Didascalia, which means teaching or explanation. That the scriptures will only profit you when they are taught, when they are explained. That is, the scriptures are not for memorization. They are not for quotation. They are for explanation. They are for teaching. So the profitability of the scriptures only accrue to you when they are taught or explained. Now you must also bear in mind that when Brother Paul said to Timothy, you've known the scriptures, there was no book of Timothy. So Timothy wouldn't have been the scriptures. There was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because the epistles were written before the gospels. So when he was saying you've known the scriptures, he was making reference to the Old Testament. You have known Genesis to Malachi, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. So the message of salvation is in Genesis to Malachi. 
and observe. He says salvation through faith, which is in Christ. So in Christ is in Genesis to Malachi. So Genesis to Malachi contains the in Christ realities. But you see, you can't see it at face value. And the reason is because the Old Testament is mystery. Mysterion. It means that which the hearer is not able to comprehend. It's mystery. Mysterion. The New Testament is revelation. Apocalypsis. Apocalypsis means the unveiling. Alright, so the Old Testament is a concealed material. The New Testament unveils the Old Testament. Now observe, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. All right? Now, so Brother Paul says to Timothy, you've known Genesis to Malachi, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So all the scriptures put together are given by inspiration, and you will only profit from them when they are taught, doctrine, didascalia, teaching, or explanation. Now, when the scriptures are taught, when the scriptures are explained, they will deliver three prophets. The first one is reproof. The word reproof is the word for evidence. Same word in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence. The word evidence is the word reproof. So the scriptures will only profit you when you are given evidence. Which means that our evidence of the subject matter, which is salvation, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, is only derived from the scriptures. That means there's no extra material that we rely on for salvation. That means our experiences are not enough to build our basis for salvation. That means what somebody has experienced or what somebody said does not form our conviction. Our persuasion and our conviction is from what is documented in the Holy Reef. Genesis to Malachi. Are we in the building? Now, then it says, apart from evidence, which the scriptures will give you, when you have evidence, evidence will bring you correction. Correction is the adjusting of the mind. Sometimes I put it like this, you unlearn so you can relearn. When the scriptures confront you with persuasion and evidence, then they, they, they cause your mindset to be adjusted. They shift your ideology. They correct your belief system. It is the job of Bible teaching to engage and challenge your ideology. Bible teaching engages your thought process. Bible teaching adjusts your belief system because when the scriptures are properly taught, especially for those of us that came from religion, came from different churches, grew up to hear all kinds of stuff, and that became our comfort zone. The teaching of scripture will challenge your comfort zone. It's like somebody said to me, you know, I was talking to somebody and I said, you know, when I teach the word of God now, when I began to teach the message of Christ, people hardly sleep in our services. But in time past, when I was teaching the other gospel, people sleep in the services. So I was asking somebody, I said, why don't you people sleep when I teach now? He said, how can I sleep? It's like I'm a man and I think I'm a man. Then you now tell me I'm a woman. And you start showing me evidence that I'm a woman. How can I sleep under such conditions? So what Bible teaching does is it challenges your thought process. And then it begins to correct. It begins to adjust. That's the profit of Bible teaching. 
Number three, he says, it will be for instruction in righteousness. The word instruction in righteousness is a Greek word pedia. It means to bring up a child or to raise up a child by the way of the mouth. Actually, that's what we mean by spiritual growth. That means there will be no spiritual growth until there is Bible teaching that brings persuasion, that brings evidence, then it brings correction that will produce spiritual growth. Are you with me here? Bible teaching, explanation of scriptures that will bring persuasion, evidence, that will bring you to a place of correction, then you can now grow spiritually. Are we still in the building now? Now, please pay attention to this. The Old Testament must be explained. If you're making notes, that's a good one to write down. The Old Testament must be explained. The Old Testament must be explained. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, had a Bible study in the book of Luke chapter 24, verse 25. The first Bible study that Jesus had in Luke 24, 25, was on the way to Emmaus, where he met two disciples. And theologians believe that it is Cleopas and arguably his wife. And they were discussing about the events of the past three days. And Jesus said to them, gentlemen, what are you guys talking about? And they looked at Jesus and said, are you a stranger in town? Have you not heard about Jesus, a good guy that was killed the other day? They were preaching Jesus to Jesus, but didn't know Jesus. So a man can be preaching Jesus and don't know Jesus. Somebody can be in church all his life and not know Jesus. They were preaching Jesus to Jesus and rebuking Jesus and scolding Jesus for Jesus. And, and Jesus responded and said to them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Observe verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus never went outside the books. Yeah. He never taught anything outside the books. Beginning at Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses, and all the prophets, major, minor prophets of the Old Testament. He expounded, that word expounded, that's the first time you will find that word in the Greek lexicon in Luke 24, 27. He expounded is the word diharmonia. Diharmonia means he interpreted. So Jesus had to interpret Moses. Jesus had to interpret the prophets. Why will he have to interpret Moses? Because Moses did not speak in literal terms. You only interpret a message that is not clear. And the prophets did not speak in literal terms. Hence the need for Jesus to interpret he interpreted or expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So beginning from the Old Testament, Jesus explained because the New Testament must be explained. You don't just take the New Testament scriptures hook, line, and sinker and run with them. No, they must be explained. Why? Because the Old Testament has compartment. The first compartment is the types and the shadows. First of all, you have Genesis, which is the seed of scripture. The seed of all scripture, Genesis. Then you have the types 
and the shadows under the law. The types, the shadows under the law. Then you have the prophecies and the promises of the prophets. Because every prophecy contains within it a promise. All right. So all of that combination is what constitutes the Old Testament. Therefore, because of the combination of different figures of speech, different communication systems within the Old Testament, the Old Testament, therefore, must be explained. Are we together now? Right. Now, I said all of that to say what I'm about to say. James chapter 1 verse 13. James chapter 1 verse 13. James 1 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempted he any man. That word, let no man say, is not referring to a casual statement. Let no man say is a present tense continuous. That is, it is referring to a viewpoint. A viewpoint. What you can call a theology or a belief system. When you say God did it, something goes wrong and your first response is God did it. Somebody dies. And after all the prayer, he still died. God did it. It's a theology or a belief system. When people say, God is trying me. Or God is tempting me. Or God is trying to teach me something. Or I am tempted of God. Or God allowed sickness to come to my body because God is trying to teach me a lesson. Or God wants to get my attention. Look at the way Brother James started that discourse. In James 1.13, please pay attention. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot. If your Bible was mine, I will underline that. For God cannot be tempted with evil. So, Jesus, I mean, James begins the discourse with God cannot. God cannot. It's easy for people to say God did it. But James says God cannot. The viewpoint, no matter how strong it is, doesn't make the viewpoint true. For example, Islam does not affirm Jesus as Savior. Islam doesn't affirm the blood of Jesus as the cure for sin. Islam doesn't affirm the resurrection of Christ. But Islam is a predominant belief system in the world today with millions of people in it. There are millions of Muslims who hold on to that view that Jesus is not the Savior, that Jesus never rose from the dead, that Jesus cannot be the Son of God. They believe that Jesus is a prophet. That is their point of view. But even though there are millions holding on to that view, and that view is popular among them, doesn't make it the truth. It doesn't make it the truth. So a viewpoint that has taken thousands of years doesn't make the viewpoint the truth. The fact that you have a viewpoint about something that has lasted for years doesn't validate the viewpoint. The age of a lie doesn't make it a truth. 
The age of a lie doesn't make it the truth. Please pay attention. The popularity of a lie doesn't make the lie a truth. In fact, when falsehood, when falsehood becomes an institution, truth sounds like rebellion. When people are too used to falsehood and it has become their comfort zone, an introduction of the truth sounds like rebellion. Actually, the introduction of the truth sounds like antichrist because they are so used to falsehood that they don't know anything else outside of falsehood. And the majority of the church world, that's where they are. A lot of things not properly taught have truths here and there. And you know, it cannot be a deception until there's a combination of lies and truth. That's what makes it a deception. It will have an element of truth and lies combined for it to be a deception. So many are deceived because they don't have the whole truth. They have a figment of the truth combined with lies. So when we bring the purity of the truth, we look like rebels. Yeah. That's where the issue is. And some of you, even now, there are some things I'm going to be saying tonight that will challenge your mind and the first reaction sometimes is to resist it. That's the first reaction. You won't just embrace it because I'm the one saying it. You resist it first and then you look at it again. Then the Holy Ghost inside you because you're born again begins to bear witness. Then your mind can't take it but the Holy Ghost is bearing witness. Then you come back and check again. You push it again. After a while, you check again. You push it away. Then you start considering it. Then it becomes your reality. Then what was your comfort zone now becomes falsehood. And then you begin to walk in the truth. Somebody's not hearing what I'm saying. If you're hearing me shout, I hear you. Now, so the age of a lie doesn't make that lie a truth. James chapter 1 verse 13 again. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. So there are things that should be settled in your mind about God. There are things that are not up for debate. You must arrive at a place where certain things about God are not up for debate. That is, you have, you have been grounded in that truth that no experience is experience enough to make you doubt the validity of what you have been established in. I don't know if I'm communicating at all. So, God cannot be tempted neither tempted he anyone as a believer there is a position you must take concerning God that nothing can shift that position there are things about God that must be settled in your heart beyond every shadow of doubt in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 the book of Titus Chapter 1, verse number 2. Titus, chapter 1, verse number 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie, God cannot lie, promised before the world began. God who cannot lie. 
in the Greek it is emphatic negative. God that cannot lie. God who cannot lie. He cannot is a strong emphasis. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18. Hebrews chapter 6 verse number 18. Hebrews 6 18. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. Are you still in the building? For which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. That is, it is impossible for God to lie. So two things. Number one, God cannot lie. Number two, it's impossible for God to lie. So there are certain facts that should be absolutely resolved in your heart. Absolutely resolved in your heart. In spite of experiences, as it were, both for you and for others. In spite of experiences. So, we settle two things. Number one, God cannot lie. Number two, it is impossible for God to lie. This must resonate in our hearts. So the question now is, is God responsible for evil? No, don't just say no. We need to settle it scripturally. Is God responsible for evil? So let's try and situate God in the equation of events. And some people say, there's nothing that happens that God did not do. There's nothing that happens. Because he is God. Or there's nothing that happens that God did not permit. Because he is God. Or there's nothing that happened that God did not cause it to happen. That's what some people say. That nothing happens in the world that God did not permit or cause it to happen. Sometimes you even hear people say, if God wants me to have it, nobody can stop it. If God wants me to have it, Nobody can stop it. If God wants me to marry you, even you cannot say no. If God says I must get that job, I will get it anyhow. Well, that's what they say. And a lot of Christians are caught up in that trap. So when they are in that position and it didn't happen, they believe that God is using it to teach them a lesson. And there are many instances in the Old Testament that validates that position. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be his holy name. The Lord gave me a wife and took her away. Blessed. What hypocrisy? What is there to bless his name for? He gave and he took. Why are you blessing him? He has taken his stuff. <laughs> hypocrisy. Brother Job. <clears throat> we'll get to him in a few minutes. We'll get to him in a few minutes. Nothing happens in the world that God did not permit. Some people believe that the power of God, which they call the sovereignty of God, God is sovereign. Yes, he is. Then they say because he is sovereign, he can do anything. 
at any time he wants to do it. No. That's not true. But is he sovereign? Yes. But does his sovereignty mean he can do anything he wants to do? No. So the sovereignty must be explained. Don't forget the Old Testament must be explained. The sovereignty of God must be explained. Is God all-powerful? Yes. Is God all-knowing? Yes. If he's not all-knowing, he's not God. If he's not all-powerful, it's not God. He sees the end from the beginning and sees the beginning from the end. That's why he's God. Nothing takes him by surprise and nothing takes him by chance. Any event occurs, he's aware it was going to happen. Did God know that Adam will sin long before Adam was created? <laughs> okay, if God knows that Adam was going to sin, why did God create him? We're coming there. What about Satan? If God really loves man. And you know, these are the questions that make many people not want to be in church. Because they can't balance the equation of a good God who delights in tormenting people. A young man said to me in London after I thought about the character of God. And he got so persuaded. He came with his eyes filled with tears. Very young boy. And he said, man of God, thank you for teaching me the truth today. I have been mad at God for years. My mother was sick, the only mother I have. She was sick at the point of death. They told me in church that God is a healer and he will heal her. I prayed that my mother died in my very eyes. And I concluded that there is no God. She said, well, the things you taught just suddenly opened my eyes. Thank you. Many people don't want your God because they have told them that your God kill it and make it alive. What a character. What a character. A God that is suffering by, by, from bipolar. Extreme good, extreme bad. When he destroys, he destroys beyond repair. And when he fixes, he fixes with excellence. So you don't know which side of him is coming on a particular day. <laughs> so when you wake up in the morning you don't know which side is coming that day a God that cannot be trusted can be my God a God that is not consistent can be my God a God that I cannot rely on cannot be my God a God that I'm not sure of cannot be my God if he's going to be my God I've got to be able to trust him I've got to be able to predict him I've got to be able to say if it happens like this it is God if it doesn't happen like this it is without prayer I should be able to look at things and say this is God this is not God because he's my father I should want my father enough to be able to defend my father anywhere it's not your uncle, it's your father. And what, I, what we're sharing today and tomorrow is where the rubber meets the road in Christianity. This is the crux of the matter. A lot of people in churches with questions that cannot be answered. Unresolved issues. They believe that there is God. They be, even Satan believes. We are not saying you don't believe that there is God. Even the devil trembles. In fact, you only believe Satan trembles. He believes and he trembles. So you pray, but you're not sure God will answer. Because you don't know if what you're praying for is what God wants you to teach you a lesson. 
Now you hear preachers say sometimes when you pray, God says yes. Other times God says no. And some other times God says wait. I was taught that. And I used to think that in my growing years as a Christian. And it colored my relationship with God. Because I wasn't sure of when he would say yes. And when he said no. And when he said wait. So he put me in a dilemma where I wasn't sure of anything. And a lot of believers are in that place. So which means that everything that happens, God is the one doing it. Because that's the assumption. They believe that God is either part of it or he's not part of it. Or he permitted it. But he would have been part of it. Because nothing can happen without his knowledge. That's his school of thought. But you need to intentionally and carefully go through some of these teachings. And that is why believers who don't honor the teaching of God's word can never be complete. Never. And let me tell you, what we're talking about here is not once a week church attendance. We're talking about a dogged commitment to the teaching of God's word on a daily basis. Just once a day. As a lifestyle. Once a week hearing of God's word is not enough for you to contend with the negativism around. There's a dogged approach that is required. Brother Paul taught daily. There was, there was a church Brother Paul taught every day for two years. Space of two years. There was another one three months daily. There was another one six months daily. In fact, there was one where he taught from morning till evening and then from evening till midnight and one person in the service fell down and died. They brought him back to life. He sat down. They continued till morning. There's an intensity that is required in Bible teaching. There's no casual approach to eternal matters. Except you're not a serious person. If you're not serious, you will understand. There's an intensity that is required. If the realities of his finished work will be made manifest through you. Because what you don't understand, you can't enjoy. There's an understanding required. <laughs> and you know, in Acts chapter 8, Philip asked the eunuch, understand this, that one that is. The eunuch said, how can I? I'm reading, but I don't understand. Except some man. There are human guides in the school of understanding. When he descended, he ascended. He gave gifts to men. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastoring teachers, pastoring teachers, pastoring teachers. For the perfecting of the saints to do the work of ministry. That the body of Christ may be edified. There is a perfecting that is required. And in perfecting you, there is an intensity. You must be intentional and deliberate about spiritual growth. It doesn't happen accidental. You must, you must be intentional and deliberate and dogged. Especially those of us in Africa who have, a, who have had a combination of religion, Africanization, witchcraft, occultism, diabolism, idol worship, all combined together as church. 
combined together as church. I'm serious. Uh, that's why we look like rebels. <laughs> when they should be celebrating and paying us specially. <laughs> because somebody who brings out to you the clarity of your father's character is somebody who loves you. Because that's where the gospel begins from. The revelation of God's character. Because you can't relate with somebody whose character you don't know. Are we teaching good? Yeah. yeah. Now, we're going somewhere with this. James says, don't say it. Let no man say. Don't teach it. Don't insinuate such. In the way you present God or in the way God is presented by you. Let's define some things. Why is it difficult for people to answer who is responsible for evil? Why is it difficult? Why is it difficult? Why, why, why do people go all over the place? When evil happens, did God allow it? There was a tsunami the other day. Was it God that allowed it? Earthquakes happened. Why didn't God stop the earthquake? Why didn't God stop it? Why does God allow evil happen? There's a famous one. Why does God allow evil happen to good people? Good people? Huh? What's your definition of good? It's a question. What's your definition of good? Because the guy is a nice guy. He greets everybody on the street. That's why he's a good person. <laughs> you know, the rich young ruler said to Jesus, good master. Jesus said, there's none good but God. There's none good but God. So, leave that side of good. Let's talk about other issues. Teaching good? Why does God allow evil to happen? So let's get into it. James 1.13 again. You know, we thank God for Brother James. Brother James sorted out a lot of things for us. James 1.13. Let no man say when he's tempted, please follow the reading carefully. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempted he any man. Next verse. But... Every man, that's a good place to underline. He didn't say every unbeliever. Every man, Christian, unbeliever, idol worshiper. Every man, white, blue, black, yellow, green, every man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and and. Christ. Next verse. And when lost hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. In verse 14 and 15, God's name is not mentioned. The motions, God is not a party. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. When lust conceives, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Observe. So a man can have a desire. That desire will mature. And desire 
can of its own self bring forth. Man's desire has productive ability. The desire in man has the ability to bring forth. That is without God or Satan involved. A man can just sit down and desire and by desire sin and by sin produce death without God or Satan involved. That's what Brother James is telling us here. Are you following? Which means that God is not in every action. God is not in every action because every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desire. So man's desire is man-made. Man's desire is man-made. Number two, man's thoughts are man-made. That's the way God designed man. Man's thoughts are man-made. Man's desires are also man-made. Let me give you this one, but keep this one somewhere just for you to be chewing on it like you chew on biscuit bone. We will crack it tomorrow. God's wrath is man-made. So watch. Man's thoughts are man-made. Man's desires are man-made. And then keep this one somewhere. God's wrath is man-made. That means man's thoughts and man's desires are man-made. Look at that, James, again. Chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own personal lust and enticed. Next verse 10. When the lust within the man have conceived in the man, it will manufacture sin. Then the sin that came out of the man's desire will manufacture death. That's the circle. It brings it for death. Now, God is only mentioned outside verse 14 and 15. God does not appear in verse 14 and 15. He's only outside of it. So look at verse 16 now. James chapter 1 verse 16. Do not err. Do not err the man that is producing. Do not err my beloved brethren. Now the word err do not err is the Greek word planao. P-L-A-N-A-O. Planao. It means to be led astray. Do not be led astray by a teaching, by an experience, by a vision, by a dream, by a so-called prophecy. Do not be led astray because what will lead you astray could be an experience or a teaching from a man of God you respect. Or a vision that you saw, or a dream, or a prophecy from someone whose prophecies are always authentic. So he now says, do not err, do not be led astray, my beloved brethren. Verse 17, 
every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness neither a shadow of turning. What he's saying is that you will not find contradiction in God. There's no shadow of turning. Mm -mm. God is consistently, constantly constant. There's no contradiction. He can't be the one killing and giving life. He can't be the one giving and taking. He can't be the one destroying and constructing. No, there's consistency in his character. No shadow of turning. There's no contradiction in the character of God. No shadow of turning. Now, please pay attention. Look at verse 18. He now says, of his own will begat he us. He begat us with the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. He is saying now that we are begotten of God. We are now supposed to reflect God's character. What is God's character? Good, perfect, no shadow of turning. Now, on of him, he first of all told us his character. Then now say of his own will, we, he, he gave back to us by the gospel. The word of truth means the message, the gospel. That we should be a kind of reflecting his character. Are you following? Are you following? Okay. Are you are you following? Okay. We should be a kind of first fruits by the word of truth or by the gospel of Christ. How are we going to be that kind? Because he says that we should be a kind. Okay. First of all, he told us he does not contradict himself. He told us he's good, he's perfect. Nothing else outside of good and perfect in him. Then he now says, he begat us that way. That we should be a kind. How are we able to be a kind of his first fruit? Look at verse 20 now, verse 20. Verse, first of all, 19. God, 19, 19, 19, sorry. 19. We are for my beloved, who are begotten of his own will. Let every man be swift to hear. Slow to speak, slow to wrath. The word slow is the Greek word brados. Slow. The word slow there does not mean you will eventually do it. Slow means you will not do it. When he said be slow to wrath, what he means is don't have wrath. It's a mode of speaking. Where he says to them, oh fools, and slow of heart. Why were they slow of heart? Because they never believed. Are you following? They never believed. So when he said be slow to rot, it's not saying get angry gradually. There is nothing like getting angry gradually. <laughs> Except it's not anger. Anger boils. Anger is fast. Be slow to rot. Be slow throughout. How? Look at the next verse, 20. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So, which means there is no wrath in God. Wrath is in man. And the wrath of man does not complement God's righteousness. That means God and wrath are direct opposites. 
There can be no wrath in God. Wrath is of man. For the wrath of man worketh not cause righteousness. So you can't say wrath of man, then you now say wrath of God. It makes it does not it does not agree. The wrath is of man. <laughs> because wrath is never slow. The word wrath in the Greek is the word orge, O-R-G-E. It has to do with something that is very fast. Something that is boiling. Wrath boils and is fast. That's why you see somebody get angry and kill his wife and then say, I didn't know when I did it. Because if somebody gets angry and breaks his television set, or a wife gets angry and damages her husband's car, then she regrets. Every time you act in anger, you regret. Because of the speed with which anger works. So he can't tell you to be slow. Because there is no slow in wrath. Wrath is always fast. So when he says be slow, what he means is you can never be angry. Are we communicating? <laughs> For the wrath of man. Work it not the righteousness of God. Now, pay attention. Then he says you should be slow. That is, you function in the opposite of wrath. In other words, you will not find God in wrath. For the wrath is of man, and it worketh not the righteousness of God. So he makes it absolutely clear that there is no wrath in the operation of God, and there is no wrath in God himself. Now the question for many people is, when things happen, we keep asking, did God allow it? Or did God do it? Especially believers. Maybe a brother is sick or a sister is sick or a sister died at the point of delivery or some brother dies in a car accident or a pastor has an unfortunate situation where he just died, you know, like a pastor who was preaching on the pulpit as he just dropped the microphone, he slumped and died. Church people will ask, ah, ah, even the man of God, then what about us? Maybe God is punishing him for something. That, how can God disgrace his servant on the pulpit? You know, all kinds of things. All kinds of things. We always are looking for an, a reason to give why something happened. Now, watch this. Whatever you arrive at in your belief system is a product of what you heard and saw. Whatever you arrive at, when you ask that question, whatever you arrive at is a product of what you saw and heard. Your belief system is informed by what you saw and what you heard. So, oftentimes, that question did God do it? Is God behind it? Did God allow it? It's from something you saw or heard or read. Something you saw or heard or read. Those are the three avenues that forms your belief system. And some people have it as a preconceived notion and may have held it for long or may have even been in the practice of it. And when the word of God comes, their mindset fights the word because they want to maintain that notion that God must be the one behind killings. 
Somebody said, Dr. Damina, don't mind them. They're preaching sugar-coated messages. Don't listen to them. You'll go to hell. How can you say that there is no wrath in God? Is God not a God of justice? If God is a God of justice, justice has to deal with offenses. And in justice, you destroy an offender or you destroy somebody who commits crime. How can God be the judge of all, which he is, and not have a justice system where he pays people for good and punishes people for bad? What of God will that God be? Oh, you are right. God is the judge of all the earth and God has, a, has the best justice system at ever saw because he's God. He's a just God. There is evil in him and he does not overlook wrong. He does not pamper wrong. He does not, he does not play with wrong. He does not handle wrongdoings with kids' clothes. He's a God of justice. What does he do with wrongdoings and sin? He punishes them squarely. The soul that sinned shall die. The wages of sin is death. It's not confession. Your confessing sin makes you a hypocrite. The judgment of sin is not confess. It's die. So if you sin, die. Don't confess. What is confess? What is confess? Do you know what you're dealing with? You're dealing with the legal system of the universe. Even Ghana legal system. If you are condemned for a crime and you bring your entire village to, to cry in the court of law, it does not reverse the judgment. Some of you think by crying, God will forgive you. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord, for the things. It doesn't move anything. Some people think by heavy tears, God will be merciful. If your tears will get God to a place of mercy, there will be no need for Christ. If your confession was good, Jesus doesn't need to come. He will have left us to keep confessing and getting freedom. Are you saying we shouldn't confess him? Keep listening. Keep listening. Because it will get clear. It will get very clear. So if God has justice, and God is a God of justice, and God is a God of judgment, and God does not overlook sin, and God does not pamper evil, then does that mean that it was God that killed people in the Old Testament for wrongdoings? Or does it mean that it was God that opened the ground to swallow some people that misbehave in the temple? Or does it mean it was actually God that, uh, you know, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Does it also mean that it was God that brought the flood of Noah? And can you also explain if God was behind because you said God is a God of justice and he has a justice system? Hold it. In his justice, man sinned, man must die. But the death of a sinner cannot score points with the justice of God. Because the death of a sinner is already corrupted. The man is a sinner. If anything will appease the justice system, it must be the death of a sinless. But man is a sinner. Man's verdict has been passed. Death. He cannot in, in his punishment or status as a dead man appeal. He will have to get a lawyer who can come to the court and plead his case. And man has no wherewithal. And man is broke. 
Man is a destitute. Man is hopeless. Man is helpless. Man cannot even help himself. Talk more of employing somebody to speak for him. But God loves man. God looks at dying man. God looks at man suffering from the outcome of his sin. Sin is ravaging man. Sin is eating man up. God said, I've got to do something if I love man. So God became a man, sinless. And said, in the place of man, I step in. Let the judgment of man be on me. So God punishes sin on himself. That is why salvation is grace. Grace because somebody paid for it. See, the whole essence of God becoming a man is love expressed. Jesus is the love of God dispensed. Jesus is the love of God expressed. Jesus is the love of God demonstrated. Jesus is the love of God manifested. Jesus is the love of God in humanity. Jesus is the love of God made manifest to man. Why? Because God loves man and he proved it by deity becoming humanity. To die in man's place so that man is eternally free from sin and its repercussion. Without God truncating justice. Are we teaching? So Jesus took care of God's justice system. Now, listen carefully because I want to say something and I want you to chew on it. If tomorrow permits us, we will offload it. If we are not able to offload it sometime when I come, but at least you'll be thinking of something. Jesus didn't die to pay God for man's sin. It wasn't God that was looking for payment. It wasn't God. God never asked for man to pay him for sin. The Bible says Jesus is a ransom. The use of that word ransom in the Bible is deliberate. You only pay ransom to a kidnapper. And God is not a kidnapper. So the ransom for man's sin couldn't have been paid to God. Now keep that somewhere. Because the death of Jesus was a ransom. The son of man gave himself a ransom for man. Ransom. When you pay ransom, you pay ransom to a kidnapper. God didn't kidnap us. So the payment was not to God. The payment was to the kidnapper. Question, who is the kidnapper? Pause. Seller. Are we together? 
keep it somewhere, right? There are two things I've asked you to keep somewhere, right? What was the first one? The wrath of God is man-made. The second one, God is not a kidnapper, so the ransom wasn't paid to God. Okay? Keep that somewhere. I'm almost done. Are you blessed tonight? I'm almost done. But let me push a little more. So let's deal with a basic practical issue. Having laid all this foundation, let's pick one case study. And the case study we want to pick is going to open up all the things I have said in the last 30 or 40 minutes. But before we get into that, if someone was an atheist and something goes wrong, the first thing an atheist is thinking of is the natural cause. Is that true? Somebody dies and atheist will say, what killed him? What killed him? He was driving and he had an accident. So he could have been over speeding. Or the other car may have gone out of its lane. Or the driver was sleeping. An atheist will look for a natural reason to explain why it happened. Or he will look for a scientific reason. That's an atheist. Is that true? They just look for a natural cause or a scientific reason why it has happened. That's the way they think. Because they don't believe in God. So there must be a natural or scientific reason for why it happens. Okay? If you are thinking as a Christian, because of the mess up, the religion, Africanization, diabolism, idol worship, mixed together as Christianity has produced in us, there must be a spiritual reason. Maybe the devil is after him, or maybe some demons have decided to finish is it not true? Yeah. Some, your plate breaks. You say there's a spirit passing by. <laughs> How many of you have observed that Christians are that superstitious? You wake up and hit your left leg. Today is a bad day. That's a sign. That's a sign. God speaks to me in signs and symbols. <laughs> so <laughs> God has left inside you to come out and be using signs and symbols. Something must be wrong with your thinking process. Looking for spiritualism for everything. Say, ah, mm, it looks like I didn't pray well last night. That's why I'm feeling like this. Church people have a mindset of always looking for a spiritual explanation. So, you know what happens? <laughs> Prof, you know what happens? We go from there is no God to God is the one behind evil. Two extremes. There is no God. There must be a natural reason or a scientific reason. Then we say, okay, no, there is God. Okay, so we are not atheists. But then as we say there is God, we move to the extreme. He's the one responsible for evil. You and the atheists are the same. There's no difference. Are you getting that? Because yeah. two of you are two extremes. Yeah. And on the two extremes, God is not in, involved in any. He's not here and he's not there. So you're actually the same. It's just that you're in two different, two different planes. Exactly, that's where the church is. Two extremes. Because nothing happens without God's permission. You are sick, is God. You are poor, is God. You are failing, is God. You marry your wife, leaves you, is the will of God. God is responsible for everything. So from one extreme, there is no God to another extreme where God is the one responsible. When you are an African, you just think like that. That's the way they raise us up. 
Just think like that. And that conclusion is from things you have heard or saw or read. All of these things put together are called experience. What you heard, what you saw, what you read, all of them are called experience. Then you come to where you believe those experiences. Let's, so let's begin with a case study tonight. Brother Job. J-O-B. Bros. Bros. Job. 42 chapters. Not five. 42 fat chapters. Pregnant with experiences and deception. The church borrowed everything that happens with burial and death from Brother Job. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be his name, from dust thou art, to dust thou shalt go. All that is from Brother Job. And somebody will say, maybe I am Brother Job. Your name is not Job, so I don't know how you are Brother Job. <laughs> he said, maybe God has allowed things to teach me a lesson like Brother Job. Maybe I'm just suffering like Brother Job, at the end things will be fine. That's living on assumption. So who is Job? Well, we know the story of Job. And I don't want to go through all the story because we have an idea, a fair idea. But look at this. In Job chapter 1, verse number, Job chapter 1, give me verse number 25, I think, if I'm not wrong. Job 1, 25. <clears throat> Job chapter 1, and there were 125 to 5. Bless you. If there's no 25, give me 23. Thank you, Lord. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I want us to read. That's why I'm waiting. Glory to God. 21. Is that the last verse? 22. Give me 21. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave. And the Lord had taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and take away. You give and take away. No. We change that song in church. Because I like the song. So we changed it. You give and give again. You give and give again. He keeps giving. He never takes away. He's not a little boy. That will give you a toy and because you made him unhappy, happy, okay, I change my mind, give me back my toy. No, God is not like that. He never takes away. He just gives and gives and gives. He keeps giving. He keeps giving. Even today he gave. Tomorrow he will give. The steadfast love of the Lord never fails. His mercy will never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Consistently, constantly, constant. So now Job is saying it is God that took his children away. Look at Job chapter 3 verse 23. Job chapter 3 verse number 23. Why is light given to man whose way is hid and whose God had hedged whom God had hedged in. Next verse. For my sighing cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. Next verse. For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which was I was afraid of is come unto me. So it is not God that took, it's fear that took. 
Job is saying, I have lived a life of fear. And you know what fear is? Fear is a connector to the object of your fear. Just like faith connects you to the promises of God. Without fear, you can't please the devil. And without faith, you can't please God. Tolerated fear contaminates faith. That's why God has not given to you the spirit of fear because fear is not of God. 365 times in the Bible, fear not one for every day. Fear is not God. Once fear comes, Satan is invited. Fear attracts the devil because it creates an environment for satanic oppression. So Job now admitted that, look, I, I was the one that was living in fear. It's what I feared that came upon me. It was not God that took. So in chapter 1, he said God. In chapter 3, after his, his head cleared a bit, he said, no, it wasn't God, it's myself. Now, let's get to the bottom of this. Job chapter 42, verse number 1. Do you have the message translation? Do you have the message? If you have the message translation, great. Message translation, beautiful. Job answered God. Please watch this. This is the end of the story of Job. This is the last chapter, verse 2. I'm convinced you can do anything and everything, which is wrong. Even at chapter 42, he was still speaking jargons. I don't know if you're following this. I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. Next verse. You asked, who is this muddying the water? Ignorantly confusing the issue. Second guessing my purposes, I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me. Made small talk about wonders way over my head. Next verse. You told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. Next verse. I admit. I once lived by rumors of you. So everything Job said in 41 chapters were all rumors. All of them were rumors. They were assumptions. I once lived by rumors of you, but now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I love the way the King James will put it. Go back to King James verse 5 and 6. King James version. Job 42, 5 and 6. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Everything I said was what I heard. I didn't prove anything for myself. But now, my eye see thee. So it took 41 chapters for Job to finally know that it was not God that was behind his torment. Do you know what the New Testament said about Job? Just one sentence. That is, there is no lesson to learn. See, let me show you this. The Old Testament is mystery. The New Testament is revelation. Okay? The New Testament is the rightly divided word. Because the New Testament was taken out of the Old Testament and divided for the benefit of the church. So what the New Testament has no commentary on is of no nutritional value to the believer. Do you know that Jesus, all Jesus could say about Solomon, the entire wealth of Solomon that was celebrated in the Old Testament 
When Jesus and only Jesus made a commentary on Solomon, nobody else. That's to show you how useless everything told about Solomon in the Old Testament is. It's totally useless, the whole story. The only thing Jesus said about Solomon is that the lilies and the birds are better than Solomon. That's the only commentary. Nothing to learn. The only thing to learn is that whenever you think of the wealth of Solomon, look at the lilies, look at the birds. They are better than Solomon. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking. So what does the New Testament say about Job? He said, you have heard of the patience of Job, how that the Lord was merciful to him. That means the only thing to learn from the story of Job is God's mercy. That the only part God played in the affliction, the torture, the torment of Job was to show him mercy. That's all. God was not behind the sickness. God was not behind the death. God was not behind the destructions. God was not behind anything that Job suffered. The only part God played is the mercy. God just showed Job mercy. What was the mercy? You can touch any, everything. Don't touch his life. That was God's mercy. That's all. Let me shock you. Elijah brought fire down. Didn't he? The church even has a song for Elijah. Lord, I want to be another Elijah here. These are the days of Elijah. What is he coming here to do? What did he forget? These are not the days of Elijah, man. These are the days of the sons of God. Elijah is a servant. We are sons. Now, I'm sorry for those of you who have had Elijah as a hero. I didn't mean to make you feel bad. <laughs> the New Testament has no commentary on Elijah. Only one sentence. Elias was a man of like passion, but he prayed. Finish. So, he prayed is the only thing that the New Testament acknowledged in Elijah. Nothing more. And only James referred to Elijah. The New Testament gives you the weight of any subject discussed in the Old Testament. If you can't find it in the New Testament, forget it. It's not important. So watch this. Who killed the firstborns of Egypt? Mm -hmm. Hebrews 11.27. Hebrews 11.27. And that's the only commentary you'll find in the New Testament. By faith, he forsook Egypt. Talking about Moses. Not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Next verse. Ooh. Through faith, are you here? Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So God didn't kill the firstborn. God only protected the children of Israel who expressed faith in him. So the only part God played was to protect Israel. The angel of death was not from God. It was the destroyer. It wasn't God that killed. That angel didn't come from God. Are you in the building? See, the Old Testament people didn't know God. They didn't know God. How do we know that? Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto the fathers, how? 
by the prophets. By the prophets. By the prophets. And some of these prophets, Jesus corrected them. Because their words were not final. Because they too were functioning sometimes on assumption. Oh, how did Jesus correct the prophet? Luke 9, 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Ayabada. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, next verse, and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, next verse. And they did not receive him. A town called Samaria said, tell Jesus we don't want him in our town. Tell him he shouldn't come here. I thought God can do everything. But they rejected Jesus. Next verse. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, will thou that we command fire? You don't have to teach us how to command it. We know how to command it. We are students of Elijah. Just give us permission. We will command fire to come down from heaven and consume this whole town. Then they gave God a reason why you should allow them. Even as Elijah did. Let's wipe out this town. How can a city reject Jesus? Let's clean it out. After all, Elijah did it. <laughs> Watch the next verse. But he turned and rebuked them. And said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. Next verse. For the son of man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And what happened? They went to another city. Jesus changed his program because people refused him to enter their city. So God cannot do everything. If God can do everything, they will have forced their way through the city. But when the city said no, he changed his location. He said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. I'm not here to destroy lives. I've never destroyed. I don't destroy. I will never destroy. I came to save lives. That means if Jesus was there when Elijah was commanding fire, I would have told him, stop that nonsense. Stop it. Reverse the fire. Because what he does not tolerate today, he wouldn't have tolerated yesterday, he wouldn't have tolerated tomorrow because it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I'm teaching, say I hear you. See, there is consistency in God's character. Now, let me give you this as I close. Are you... The prophet, beginning from Moses, Moses presented God in a particular form that was not too good. Because even Moses, Jesus corrected him. You have heard it has been said by them of old, an eye for an eye. That's Moses. But I see. Bless those that hurt you. Pray for those that curse you. Do good to those that despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your father. That's how your father behaves. Don't copy Moses. Moses didn't know your father like you know him. Am I communicating? Yes. He corrected Moses. He corrected Elijah. 
Why? Because they didn't have the accurate revelation of God. And somebody says, how do you know that? Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I mean, house of Israel, after those they say the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Next verse. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor saying, know the Lord. For all of you shall know me. So in the new covenant, we have a revelation of God that the old covenant didn't have. Somebody say, prove more. John 1, 18. John chapter 1, verse 18. Glory to God. When I talk about the character of God, I go crazy, man. Because as my father, I'm defending. And I know him well. No man had seen God at any time. So before the, in, before the incarnation of Christ, nobody saw God. Adam never saw God. Moses, never, none of them saw God. This, no man has seen God at any, that is, since time started, nobody saw God. There has never been a physical appearance of God. Never, not once. So it's easy to assume. It's easy to conclude. It's easy to be wrong about somebody whom you've never met. You've never known. Now, the only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he had declared him. That is, the reason why I came, two things. Number one, to reveal the exact character of God. Number two, to save man from sin, which is still part of his character. Yeah. Yeah. Are you following? Yeah. This is John speaking. Look at Jesus himself speaking. John 5, 37. John chapter 5, verse 37. And the Father himself, which has sent me, had borne witness of me. Then he turned to the Jews and said to them, You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. None of you have ever heard his voice. None of you have ever seen his shape. Then look at the next verse. And you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he has sent, him you believe not. You've never seen him. Me that came from him, I want to tell you about him. You're arguing with me. This is Jesus speaking. So, God saw that his character was modeled up. So, God decided to first of all defend his character so that the family he's raising will know him. He's a family man. And you can never know your father if he's not physically there. So, Jesus came physically so that we can know God in a man. Our God is a man. It's called identification. So when he walked the earth, he was revealing to you what he does. He killed nobody. God never kills. He made nobody sick. God never brings sickness. He destroyed nobody. God never destroyed. Even at the point of his crucifixion, they came to arrest him. As they were about to arrest him, Marcus brought out a knife. I mean, Peter brought out a knife, chopped off the ear of Marcus, who wanted to arrest Jesus. Jesus stopped and said, Peter, stop that. Took the ear, fix it back. Don't spoil our record. 
We don't destroy. We don't destroy. Put your knife back. We don't destroy. This is the person that will arrest him. He's still healing him. That's my father. Every good and every perfect gift coming from above, from the father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, nor a shadow of turning. Are you blessed tonight? Yeah. That's just a foundation I have just laid tonight. Tomorrow we get into some more things. And those scriptures you are planning to shoot at me, I will shoot them at you first tomorrow and answer them before you ask me. <laughs> because I already know in your mind the kind of scriptures you are planning. If we say question, uh, what about? Uh, what about? Don't worry. Tomorrow I will read them for you and explain so that when I say question, you are already satisfied with the answers. Because the essence of preaching is to supply answers. Somebody say, I hear you. Are you blessed tonight? You know, by the time you hear about the character of your father, it makes you love him more. It makes you draw nearer to him. You want to, you just want to fellowship with him. Fear goes, confidence comes. Your father is a good father. He loves you. He loves you. You can never do anything that is too bad that your father will turn his eye. In your badness, he will roll his sleeves and come down where you are. Pick you out and clean you up. No matter how bad. No matter how bad. I've had people freed from addictions. People freed from all kinds of things. Just listening to the message of Christ. No deliverance, no special prayer. Just hearing about the character of God. Freed them from addictions, from holes of the enemy. Total freedom. And that's what the gospel does. It's the power of God. The gospel does not have power. The gospel is the power. So when the gospel is preached, like we're preaching tonight, the power is released. So whatever was not working, where you need a miracle, receive a miracle now. In the name of Jesus. We rebuke sickness. We rebuke infirmity. We rebuke disease. Every oppression of the enemy broken right now. Every hold of darkness terminated right now. In the name of Jesus. Satan, get your hands off of God's property. Lekota, Makira, Nakoda, Kalia, Nakata. Egabayo, Kalanama, Korodosa. Egalida, Korodosha, Kilanama, Nakotekea. Every oppression of the enemy is terminated. I decree and declare what was not working starts working for you. Starts working for you. Starts working for you. We rebuke the wind. We rebuke the waves. We rebuke the wind. We rebuke the waves of life. We speak peace. 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 Peace be still. And in the name of Jesus, we rejoice tonight. And we declare testimonies. Many sided testimonies. Yakatukaba. Where there were impossibilities, we suspend the laws of nature and we command the supernatural in the name of Jesus. We command the supernatural. Receive, receive, receive. Receive, receive. Receive, receive. In the name of Jesus. And I declare tonight, you're rooted and grounded in love. You're kept by the power of God. You grow in grace. You grow in knowledge. The revelation of Jesus grows big on your heart until nothing else matters. In the name of Jesus. Father, we rejoice that all of this house 
and the millions that are going to come here from around the world will experience the nature, the character of God in his clarity in the name of Jesus. And we pray that everybody hearing these teachings is being equipped to manifest the glory of God in these last days like never before. Thank you, Father. And we rejoice. And thank you for your word. In Jesus' precious name. And every believer says a powerful amen.